0: Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the Features Editor at Wizard.com, Tara Hashim, and the Magazine Editor of Wizard Cricket Monthly. New one of those out today, Joe Harmon. Um, there's lots to talk about today. We've had a great ODI series full of twists and turns between England and Australia. We've got more Blast and Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy action to talk about. We've got an England T20i series and the IPL to look forward to. But first up, the ODIs. England lost their first home ODI series in over five years. Joe, which comeback slash collapse was your favourite in that series?
2: <laughs> and My favourite has got to be the, the Aussie one in the, in the second game uh, when... Archer and Wokes took, what, three wickets apiece. Um, That mid-innings match-changing spell uh, where it looked like the game was lost, Morgan kind of bet all his money on Archer and Wokes coming off. Uh, And it worked perfectly. And Australia, that middle order, did look vulnerable (laughs) until yesterday. Uh, And then Carey suddenly found some form, and Maxwell played a godlike innings. But um, up until then, it, it did look, if you got Australia's top order out, that the rest would kind of disappear quite quickly and I think we might have expected more of the same yesterday
0: Mm. Um, yeah let's talk about that third ODI first Uh, the main talking point at the end was Owen Morgan's decision um, to give Adil Rashid the last over with Australia only needing 10 more to win one BBC Sport follower said that Owen Morgan should never be allowed to captain England again (laughs) after that decision (laughs)
1: Tahar do you agree with Alan from the Isle of Wight (laughs) no no I think Alan's 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 got that one wrong I don't um, think you'll agree with
2: Adam from the Isle of Wight on many things. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. That's just a guess, but we'll...
1: um, yeah, no, it was. I I kind of saw Adam Rashid come on. I was like, ah, no, <laughs> like that's probably probably not the right call. Um, I was thinking Tom Curran, uh, just because sort of every time I've seen him bowl a final over England, he's usually the one that comes out on top. You know that that final over was sort of ended with one big swing of Mitchell Stark's bat from the from the first ball. From that from then it was. It was the game done, but you know Owen Morgan, you know was was brilliant in that second ODI, and then in the in the third ODI as well, bringing Joe Root on, getting those two wickets as well. Uh, he was just he was doing his thing. Uh, one one bad call. Um, he's he's still probably, you know, I'd, I'd still argue he's England's greatest of captain.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't think the Rashid call was was that bad. I I kind of saw the logic of it. Pat 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 Cummins and Mitchell Stark, I do kind of back them to get ten runs in and over four or five times out of ten uh and given who australia had at 10 or 11 if if england got one wicket they'd be massive favorites i think the problem was just the execution Rashid bowled a bad ball like it was basically the worst possible ball he could have bowled actually to stark who i'm not convinced can pick his rongan uh you've seen a few times of Rashid when he bowls against low order batsmen sometimes he bowls a long hop and it's fine because they have no idea which way it's going but when it's full the spin doesn't really the direction the turn doesn't really matter so I, yeah i wouldn't I, di- I didn't think it was quite as bad a call as everyone said it was. I actually thought Morgan's biggest mistake in that game was over bowling Root. So I think it was brilliant bringing Root on and Root took the two big wickets. But Carey and Maxwell kind of got to 30-odd, 40, without too much trouble. And although Root bowled well, that England did have quite a few other bowling options. So how many overs did Curran bowl in the end? Five or six? And think Curran bowled very well in both those last t- two um, ODIs.
2: And Morgan has used Rashid in a similar way in the past and it's worked well and it's another one if it did come off then Morgan is even more of a genius so I think yeah sure it didn't work this time full disclosure I was actually I had dinner plans last night so, <laughs> so I, I, I missed the end of this I actually left the house about 70 odd for five and was listening on the radio when um, Archer had Carey but then it was a no ball then I thought, ah, still, it's, it's fine. Sort of following on on my phone as I was having dinner, probably not not great company for who I was with. <laughs> um, and then I looked at the scorecard at the end and I assumed that Mark Wood had got injured because he had his one over left and, and Rashid was bowling at the end. But, you know, it was a punt that Morgan took and these punts often come off for Morgan. Um, and it's one of those things, it's similar to the way England Bat, You can't laud them when it all works and then say, God, you've got to play more sensibly when it doesn't. <laughs> Morgan Capsons in a certain way, which has had huge success, it's not going to happen every time. And, and this was one occasion where it didn't work out for him.
0: Yeah, I think in a series, it didn't quite work out as planned for England. You kind of saw, as like a few batsmen were out of form, kind of how everything needed to kind of go together for England to be so good so consistently for so long. So first off, I think it was remarkable that England got to 67 for two at the end of a power play that they were 0 for two. And I, and I wonder if in this, I think the word great is fair actually with this England ODI side and what they've done over the last five years. Um Besto is almost like the most under, underappreciated element of that team. His numbers are completely mad. Uh No one averages more and has a better strike rate than him in the history of ODI cricket among opening opening batsmen he averages 50 at a strike rate of 108 that's that's incredible and I thought in the first two ODIs when Bester was a little bit out of Nick struggling for form you kind of saw, saw England missed because I think it's quite rare that like Joe Root and Morgan have had to come in before and like actually rebuild after a slow start
1: where England have lost wickets yeah and it, it looks so tough to bat in the power play in, the, in these ODIs as well because you know Hazelwood was so economical in those first two matches um, in this match, Starks started so brilliantly. I mean, like Besto's not even faced the ball and he's lost Jason Roy and Joe Root. And then he just bats as if, as if he hasn't lost anyone. He's just batting so sort of fluently and getting England up and running in that power play. Um, he is, you know, he's the guy who uh, it's probably forgotten a bit, but he's the man who sort of rescued England's world cup campaign um, to two centuries in those games against uh was it india new zealand um must win games in, in must win games um he is you know f- that's it that was his 10th odi century um and it's come in and the, these have all come in what three years basically um it, he's, he's been remarkable for england
0: and that was his slowest odi ton despite taking only
1: 116 balls yeah uh and his and his first that wasn't it, that, that was his first below a strike rate of 100 basically yeah right, yeah
2: And I mean, yeah, the two you mentioned against India and New Zealand obviously going to be better remembered than one in a losing cause yesterday. But I think that's up there with his best ever ODI innings to bat like he did, having lost two wickets in the first over. Uh, And he was timing it by the end because, as you said, he wasn't actually in great nick uh, leading into that match. So to continue to play aggressively... Uh, the shot he reached 100 with just f- a flick over over midwicket square leg for six, uh, and then after that 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 little session from 100 to 112, he was hitting the ball so cleanly. Just he was apt, I thought at that point he might be going on for a for a 150, but then he, and again it shows England's adaptability and and just all round excellence that uh, even after besto goes to get to 300 from that point, given the little flurries of wickets they'd lost, was uh, an amazing effort really. And to see Wokes bat in the way he did and Rashid bat in the way he did. There were those two shots. There was the Rashid outrageous six off Mitchell Stark, again over kind of square leg. And then Wokes is kind of butler-esque, where he's kind of going to go one way, faints one way and then flips it over. Uh, these are two all-rounders, but bowling all-rounders with that level of skill, you do just have to think, wow, England have got some seriously special cricketers at the right. moment.
1: Um, and, and Sam Billings as well, in terms of, you know, he got that 100 in the first ODI um to i i was actually more impressed with how he played played yesterday um he came in with england like in four down not 90 something for four um still in a really tricky position um and and bad beautifully um i think he hit mitchell stark sort of into into the car park or something like that or into the into the nets um so for him it's been a it's been a really a really strong summer uh obviously he's he still wouldn't be in england's first choice 11 he's filling in for you know, Ben Stokes. Um, but he's sort of now right up there as as, as the next man in. I mean, he, he's he been the next man in for a, for a long time, but he sort of had sort of fallen away a bit and, and is now sort of back in that and establishing that setup, I think, again.
0: Yeah, and, and also he, he only averaged 22 in ODI cricket going into the summer. He's had a brilliant ODI summer. And, and, and Joe, you want to talk a little bit about how England might look in 2023. A lot of their team... Uh, I mean, they'll, they'll all pretty much be in their 30s. So, And Billings is will also be in his 30s, but he's on the younger side of of the of the batting group. And I don't know, like it almost feels sacrilegious to even ask this, but Jason Roy and Joe Root both ha- have had quite fallow periods in ODI cricket since the World Cup. Roy only averages 12, Root less than 30. And I know that they were both of them amazing for so long, but with Soap to come into this side and Billings having done so well, like there is pressure to perform, which ordinarily you'd think they'd get it absolutely ages.
2: Oh, uh, there's definitely pressure to perform. And you've got Tom Banton waiting, you've got Phil Salt waiting as well, uh, who looks a, a really special talent and is already 24. So there's a chance they, they're wanting to want to have a look at him soon, sooner rather than later. Look, I wouldn't be making any changes now, um, but it is an interesting dilemma for England. The, the, the side that won the World Cup uh, last summer was almost the perfect age. If you think, If they hadn't won it last summer, it would have been so devastating because you look at the average age they're all around 29 30 come the next world cup they're going to be 32 33 34 um it's fine to have a few players with that experience you want that experience but you, you don't really want a whole side average that uh, who are 30 years or uh, over archer was the only one who played in the last world cup who'd be under 30 come the next world cup so they're gonna have some tricky decisions in the next couple of years do they start trying to blood some young players because they think a couple of these players will fall away by the time of the next World Cup? That's a difficult thing to do when you've got World Cup winners with formidable records behind them. Um, and Owen Morgan's going to have some some tricky things to to deal with. And, and Billings is a classic example. He's 29 now, uh, so he's not young. This is the time when he needs to be playing, but there is no spot for him. But then if you get to the World Cup in three years and Billings has still only been a bit part player, then it's quite a lot to expect him to suddenly just... Fill that middle order role and, and and do it perfectly. So, yeah, big decisions for for Morgan to make in the next few years. Todd, do
0: you agree with Joe that you don't really want a team with an average age of thirty two, thirty three, or do you think you can still succeed with a team with people? You you sometimes see in T Twenty cricket. And we'll talk about the IPL later, but uh, CSK always get written off every year because their their team's really old on paper. They always end up doing well. Different format, I know, but do you reckon it's doable? It's-
1: it's more just, I, I find this really interesting with, with, especially with ODI cricket in terms of you have these four year world cup cycles and, and it's tempting to think, okay, now we need to hundred percent just build towards the next world cup. But it's, you just, there's so many unpredictable things that can happen. It, it's that balancing act of where you've got to, you've still got to try and win games in, in here and now, and you've got to to qualify for the world cup. Exactly. Literally. Now yeah. you have to qualify. Um, And it's so hard to actually predict what's going to happen in four years. I was quite, I I don't know, for some reason the other day, I was watching highlights of England's ODI series against New Zealand in 2015, when it's like, they're obviously building towards, yeah, they're obviously building towards that next world cup cycle. I see Steve Finn bowling. Now you could have thought at the time, oh, he's the guy that's going to be potentially leading the attack at the 2019 world cup, but you know, nothing's, nothing's predictable. He played as, you know, he hasn't played since 2017. Um, It's really hard to sort of predict these things. And, um, England England obviously made a statement that they were sort of building towards that cycle immediately after when they you know, left out Liam Plunkett and they've had youngsters come in you know they've given debuts to the likes of Saki Mahmood um, Tom Banton um, but I think I think they are sort of still getting the balance right because uh, in this series we still saw that sort of established side and then you've still got those young guys who have who've had a few chances now but are sort of still on the outer and it's just about you know, balancing balancing that as you as you go through the the next four years, but nothing's really going to be, you know, it's it's still so hard to predict what's going to happen in 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 India three years from now.
2: I think Tars right; these things will naturally work themselves out in in a lot of ways. That players will lose form to such an extent that it's clear that they should go out, and other players will emerge that just have to be given a go. I think that will happen to an extent, but spin bowling is one area that is is a real concern, particularly when you think the next World Cup is in India. Spin bowling is going to be hugely important um Adar Rashid will be 35 I mean as long as he's fit he's an absolute banker that's fine but then Moen Ali will be I think 36 I mean on his kind of trajectory of form at the moment it's hard to see Moen Ali still playing for England in in three years time I would say perhaps even a year's time the way things are going and then you look at the next lot and, and it's not quite clear Matt Parkinson is, is the obvious next contender um do they think Don Best can be a one-day bowler something potentially worth looking at but I think they do need to start getting some caps and some spin bowlers really quite soon, um, because they're going to be so crucial. And more than any other role in the side, probably spin bowlers just need need to learn in that role. Batsmen mm. can just come out from the blast and just and and smash it to an extent, particularly the way they play these days. But someone like Perkins, Parkinson really needs to learn how to bowl in international cricket.
0: Do you, Do you think England will want to to actively look for a finger spinner? Maybe because you've you've already got the leg spin of Adil Rashid and and also. I feel with Parkinson, even though he probably has established himself as the best white ball spinner in the country outside of the current first choice England team, uh, he doesn't bat and Moeen's role in the team was to bat. I mean, just on Moeen quickly, uh, the last 24 months, he averages 15 with the bat and 88 with the ball in ODI cricket. I know that he's not really a wicket-taker, but...
2: The economy's not great either. It's not good enough to compensate for the fact he's not taking wickets. And
0: even if it was, I'm not sure what England... If England even want somebody who takes not 50 off 10 overs, like there's such an emphasis on taking wickets in the middle overs. I'm not sure, sure if they even want an on-form mowing alley with the ball. So, I, yeah, I'm not sure what England actually want that their number seven batsman slash who who also bowls to actually be. I, I don't know. I really don't know.
1: Yeah, I guess Wokes is in integral to that now. It seems like he can probably, you know, bat, do a job at seven um, and, you know, help with that. But obviously what, what Moeen could offer before was, especially with him and Stokes, it's like if if you look at the surface and what you need is pace, you can go to Stokes. If you need spin, then you go to Moeen. Um, yes, Moeen's been horribly out of nick, but the the value of having that sort of, um, that that spinner who can can obviously bat is is enormous and it's just hard to see who there, there is just no direct replacement for him right now but obviously when you start out, Nick you'd kind of just take anyone else
2: and that's why I think Don Bess is an interesting option who might end up being a better one day cricketer than, than a test cricketer in, in time um, in that that kind of bits and pieces role is potentially more useful in, in one day cricket but he's only played I think had like a handful of one-day games, just getting. Mm. so he's only played fifteen one-day games in his whole career. So that would be a huge punt at this point. But there aren't, as you say, ideally they'd be looking for a finger spinner. But there's not, there's not many about in county cricket that you can say they played, they've done enough to warrant an England selection at this point.
0: I mean, Liam Dawson is is the one, but he spins it in the same direction as Rasheen. And, and I do think that matters. I think England will want to, to have all bases covered, and unfortunately, that that, that doesn't quite do do that. It was a it was a great series for, for Wokes that we've touched on. He's he's up to number four in the ODI bowling rankings and number two in the ODI all rounder rankings. Both he and Archer were obviously sensational in that second ODI. Um we were talking before we went when we started recording um about Joffre Archer and his summer and how people talk about him. Um in the second ODI, I thought that was probably the best he's bowled, arguably ever, in an England shirt. He looked almost every ball he looked like he was gonna take a wicket. Um, and kind of doing so in a way that I think, you know, it just makes sense for him to bowl. He's bowling back of a length quickly with the odd bouncer, rather than just bowling bouncers with the occasional uh, good length delivery. What, what, Joe? What, what do you put the difference in Archer in white ball cricket this summer between that and him in red ball cricket down to? Well,
2: there was a, I thought a telling comment from Archer in that he said, uh, I think in the interview that you might have been part of that he said I, Morgan just tells me to do what I, I want to do. Um that doesn't seem to be the case in in Test cricket. And I'm not saying that should be the case in Test cricket, but he obviously enjoys that freedom. Um, he's also still he's much more comfortable with a white ball. I mean that that's what he's predominantly grown up playing county cricket. I know he's played a lot of county championship cricket, but he hasn't played a lot of test cricket and he's played a lot of IPL big bash and, and he knows how to bowl when he's got a set amount of overs and he knows how many overs he's going to bowl in a day so he can bowl as fast as he wants for that period. And it just feels like he hasn't quite got to the point in test cricket where he knows how to balance those those things out yet. Um, and there will be a tendency for people to potentially look at Root's captaincy compared to Morgan's and, and is Root able to get what he wants out of Archer in the way that Morgan is. But that's a difficult thing to make that claim when you're not part of the dressing room. I I, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that it's it's joe root's fault at all because i i think that's would be too simplistic for quite a complex situation um but it is frustrating when you see him bowl so incredibly well we all we're all greedy we want to see that all the time in test cricket but but the fact is it's not that easy um in the in the issue of wisdom creek monthly that's just come out today zafran sari our our monthly columnist has has written a piece related to this and and it's a kind of a he fears that we're going to end up alienating archer all kind of destroying his self-belief by obsessing about his pace and ansari the crux of ansari's column is that we seem to be equating pace to effort so if he's trying really hard he's bowling 90 miles an hour uh if he's not trying hard then he's bowling 85 miles an hour and ansari said that's just far too simplistic a way to look at it so there's so many different factors involved in bowling fast uh and Archer said himself that some days it, it just it just doesn't work. Things need to slot into place. And if they're not slotting into place for him to bowl 90 miles an hour, he has to think and bowl differently. And that's I think he is adaptable in that way that we should be celebrating in the way that lots of other fast bowlers are all about pace and, and, and not much else. Um, but yeah, it, it's a tricky issue and it's going to keep coming back and back and back. And I think we should... <laughs> not be too greedy i think that i think we have high expectations but also have realistic expectations
1: i think what what i quite enjoy about watching him in white ball cricket is him as sort of the leading man you know taking the new ball he's he's the man sort of i mean morgan relies so heavily on him i mean we saw it with the super over last year you know arch was a newbie but he gave him the ball and it's that responsibility that he sort of seems to thrive on And also the best we've seen him in Test cricket was last summer when he was, you know, taking the new ball alongside Stuart Broad. Um, You know, when he's sort of, he, the way Joff, I mean, the way Joffre Archer is as a cricketer, when we watch him, you know, he's the one who captivates us and him as the leading man just feels feels right when he's sort of the supporting act, the third or fourth teamer. Everything just sort of feels out of place.
2: It's a really good point. It's a really good point. But, England and Archer have to find a way of managing that because, because yeah. it's not going to change anytime soon because, well, Broad's bowling as well as he's ever done. Anderson's not going anywhere uh, for the foreseeable. So they've just got to find roles that, that suit them.
0: I also think, by the way, on Archer, how much the mental side of this summer should be taken into account Massively. in his performances. Massively. He's been in the bubble more than anyone else. He's been in the bubble for 87, 88 days. Uh, and he was asked in that press conference this week, Uh, do you you have any plans of playing in the Big Bash this summer? And he kind of just laughed and said, no, uh, I need to see my family. He said he's not seen his family since February. Uh, He's been in the bubble longer than anyone else this summer. Uh, He's going straight from that to the IPL bubble for pretty much two months. And England will then have a reasonably packed winter schedule after that. So uh, the guy just needs a break. Uh, Also, like... The general public have been allowed to live reasonably normal lives out for quite a long time, and Jofra Archer hasn't been able to do that. And I think there is a human side to all this that you need to take into account. He is still quite young, um, and this uh, traveling the world, etc., is all, all very, very new to him.
2: I think mean, that's a hugely important point, and it's easy to forget. But we've, I was just writing for our roundup of the White Ball Summer. This schedule should never be repeated from a player's perspective, but from our perspective, it's great. There's cricket. Yeah constantly there's almost a game every day they've been really (laughs) good games and you can just get into the zone of like oh when's the next cricket and actually forget these guys aren't machines especially I thought it was incredibly impressive to see Archer and Wood both bowling as fast as they were yesterday Wood in particular at the end of a summer which is I mean Wood obviously has been kind of champing at the bit to get out there because he's barely played but but still just to be putting their body on the line um, I think it's great I think the we've got a lot of um, Credit, and rightly so, to the ECB and all the organisers that have managed to make it happen this summer as well. But there's also been barely a word of complaint from any of the players, and I think they've done a a done a, everyone a great service, really.
0: Yeah, very quickly on Wood. Yesterday, he bowled a maiden over where the slowest ball was 92 miles per <laughs> hour, which is just extraordinary. Um, going back a little bit to that third ODI, we need to talk about Australia a little bit more. Ty, so, were you surprised to find out that that was only Glenn Maxwell's second ODI, ODI 100 and, and that coming... Five years and apparently exactly two thousand and twenty days after the, the first one.
1: Which no, is, which I, is spooky. I, w- I wasn't surprised because I've been waiting for it for a really <laughs> long time. Um, you know, we talk a lot about Glenn Maxwell. He's got a lot of fans out there. He's got a lot of cr- critics out there, um, and you know, both sides are right <laughs> in a way. You know, <laughs> as summed up by his innings yesterday, or yeah, <laughs> and summed some up by his numbers that that was only his second ODI hundred. Um, but he is such a captivating cricketer to watch. Um, the innings yesterday was was remarkable and and one that um, I think you said this to me while we were watching it sort of sums up Glenn Maxwell the cricketer. Um, he's got this new sort of open stance where the, the battle with Adil Rashid was incredible because Rashid would bowl this ball and Maxwell would look to defend it with this stance which just looked ridiculous. And then there was at one point where you know England reviewed the LBW where the ball hits Maxwell's, the, the strap of Maxwell's gloves because he's got himself in such, a, such an awkward position. Um, and then he'll just slog sweep Rashid for the biggest six you've ever seen. Um, and that battle was incredible. I mean, Rashid eventually got Maxwell out when Maxwell plays, you know, this goes for the sweep again with sort of 18 required of 19 or uh, something. I mean, just
0: got away with it, the ball before as yeah, well.
1: Some, something along those lines. And you think, God, if Australia loses this now, I mean Maxwell has saved them and yet he's also also lost them the game potentially. <laughs> Something like that. Um but he is such a such a, a brilliant cricketer to watch. He's had that first ODR where he rescued Australia. He had the a sec-
2: really good battle with Archer in that when he hit him for consecutive sixes yeah. and then Archer got him the very next ball, yeah. I think.
1: Um and then in the second ODR he sort of like sort of flails at one which goes straight through him. And it's sort of that up and down the, the the ride you take with Glenn Maxwell is is not like a you know, is not a ride you take with any other cricketer. He is quite incredible. Good and bad. You know. It's it's hard to even say is that a breakthrough innings because you never know. When I saw that first ODR hundred he hit in a World Cup against Sri Lanka, a beautiful knock, you thought that's the breakthrough knock. And then here we are five years later talking mm. about it his next ODI century.
2: We talk about breakthrough not so there was a good stat is the fewest balls to 3,000 ODI runs for Glenn Maxwell (laughs) uh, which is a very Maxwell stat isn't it because you'd think well how's he done that and not played more of the landmark innings that that Uh, we're talking about.
0: But yeah I I thought it was a genuinely astonishing inning because I thought with an England hat on England had not won that game until Maxwell was out basically because Maxwell can just score eight runs and over quite easily And I thought, Alex Carey's 100, uh, he scored 100 because Glenn Maxwell was the other end, I think. Uh, Carey was really struggling for form, uh, really struggling for any kind of rhythm early on the innings, and it got better towards the end. But he was not under pressure to score quickly because not only was Maxwell batting like he was at the other end, it was also because I think everyone knows what Maxwell is capable of. Like, there was never a pressure to kind of claw back the run rate. A few times it got towards nine, nine and a half and over. But Australia didn't panic because of what Maxwell was doing and what he was capable of. Um, so I thought it was an astonishing innings, even though they both got hundreds. I thought Maxwell's innings was, was worth so much more than Kerry's. So you kind of saw that as well when yeah. Maxwell went out, that even though Australia only needed six and a bit runs and over, that suddenly Kerry, who was just playing the supporting role, suddenly he was a person who needed to score the runs. And, you know, it was, at the end of the day, it was Stark who, who upped the run the scoring rate at the very end to
1: get them over the line. And with, with all due respect to Alex Kerry, I mean, it's, it's a fine knock playing that century, but Everything I remember from yesterday is, is Glenn Maxwell. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry to, him, but uh, that that's the truth. It was just the, it's just the way Maxwell plays that, that that does that.
0: Yeah, and then and then finally on this series, um, Joe, why, why was Josh Hazelwood not in Australia's World Cup squad <laughs> last year? Um, behind Kane Richardson, Nathan Coulthard, and Jason Berendorf.
2: Well, I think there's sometimes in this podcast and all other podcasts, uh, <laughs> we might be guilty of looking back in hindsight and potentially changing our our opinions with the benefit of hindsight. I think Josh Hayeswood's non-selection for the World Cup, left us all a bit surprised at the time. I don't think this is now we've seen him and think he's good and like wonder why he wasn't there. Bizarre that he wasn't there. I mean, they obviously, there was, part of it was protecting him for the ashes, but I think that was only a part of it. They obviously don't, they didn't think of him as a one-day bowler because he bowls in a very traditional way. He bowls in an ODI like he bowled in sort of 2000, basically. The World Cup over here in 1999, you'd, you'd just double top of off for the first six overs. And then, um, and that that's sort of your job done. I think, I suppose, the concern with Hazelwood is when you have to bring him back on at the death. Has he got those skills that a lot of the other players do? Uh, and we saw that even yesterday that he went for quite a few at the end. Um, Wokes t- um, took him to pieces a bit. Um, but with a new ball, devastating. I don't see how you can't, you can't pick him.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, the international summer is not over. The England women's side play West Indies in a five-match T20i series that begins on Monday. They announced a 16-strong squad for that yesterday. I'll just run through that now. It's Heather Knight, Tammy Beaumont, Catherine Brunt, Kate Cross, Freya Davies, Sophia Dunkley, Sophie Eccleston, Katie George, Sarah Glenn, Amy Jones, Natsgiver, Andy Shrubstall, Maddie Villiers, Fran Wilson, Lauren Woodenfield, Hill, Danny Wyatt. Um, it's basically the same squad as they had for the T20 World Cup earlier in the year with Katie Jordan, Sophia Dunkley added to it, and Georgia Elwis missing through injury. A couple of notable performances from the recent rounds of the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy action. Uh, Georgia Adams has been scoring prolifically for the Vipers. She scored 154 not out in their most recent game against Western Storm, following scores of 89, 44, 55, and 37 earlier in the competition.
2: Uh, that's Chris Adams' daughter, I believe.
0: Interesting. Um, she's, she's done really well. I think she's the leading run scorer in the tournament by some distance, actually. Uh, and then there was remarkable f- figures from a friend of the podcast, Alex Hartley, who took uh, four for eight off ten overs for the Thunder against the Lightning, um, which I guess must be some kind of derby. Anyway, in uh, men's county cricket, uh, a few weeks ago now, Taha, you wrote the story of the experiences of racism that ex-Yorkshire spinner Azeem Rafiq allegedly faced during his time in the club. Um, this week, there was a development to that story with ex-Pakistan quick Rana Naveed al-Hassan. Telling ESPN Crick Info, I fully support what Azeem said, and this has been the case with me as well. I never spoke about it because as foreigners, we were temporary and somehow I managed to accept the way it is. So I just focused on playing cricket. I never wanted to jeopardize my contracts. There was systematic taunting and it's tough to do much about it. To us as overseas players from Asia, when you're not able to perform the home crowd, which should be supporting us, instead, they started hooting and would taunt us with racist slurs like Paki. If you are performing then you get all the space but in case I'm not taking wickets the attitude suddenly started to change. They started to give us a tough time giving me a smaller hotel room and there used to be a clear case of discrimination. They would do some strange things to annoy us and make you feel lesser. It wasn't abusive but the attitude wasn't friendly towards Asians. At times I used to feel bad, but I decided to ignore it because I knew I was not going to live there permanently. But I know what Azeem went through. He did share his frustration in my playing days. The day he was released by the club wasn't ideal and says a lot about them. But I had been advising him to stay strong and take it as a challenge. This only happens in Yorkshire. I played several years for Sussex and they were tremendous. They treated me like their own family. Those two years were absolutely great. Even my first year in Yorkshire was okay, but the trouble started in my second year. Um, Yorkshire then released a statement on uh, Naveed's claims saying that Mr. Naveed's comments in relation to this and to his and Mr. Rafiq's experiences playing for Yorkshire in 2009 are very concerning. We take them very seriously. We've recently engaged an independent law firm, Squire Patton Boggs, to conduct a thorough investigation into this matter and they will report their findings in due course. In addition, we have also appointed a subcommittee led by Dr. Samir Patak and supported by NACC Chairman Mr. Gulfraz Riaz to review the findings of the investigation and provide advice on any further steps the club needs to take. Um, We'll keep you updated on that story as it develops. Um, Elsewhere in the blast, Gloucestershire, Surrey and Notts are through to the quarterfinals. Pretty much all the other teams are in with a chance of qualifying. Uh, Yorkshire have had a really bad time of it with uh, David Willey, testing positive for COVID-19 and a few of their team having to miss games due to self-isolation, quarantining and all that. Um Middlesex have been quite an interesting side to watch. They're um, one of the sides with a chance of qualifying for the quarterfinals. Um, I'm going to talk about one of their old players and you, you're going to talk about some of their new players. Uh, Tim Murta has been an unexpected star this summer. So prior to the 2020 summer, Tim Murta played just one T20 game for Middlesex in seven years. This summer, he's got five wickets of 15 at an economy rate of six and a half. Um, but yeah, so there are some youngsters who caused uh, quite a storm already for them. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I wouldn't say storm, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I was quite interested. Um, so uh, the, they've got a youngster called Joe Cracknell um, and I've, I've taken interest in him because his, his brother Will came to do work. Oh, experience yes. Yeah, I remember him. <laughs> um, and so Joe uh, played his, made his debut at the start of this week, hit a 28, uh, 21 ball 28 against Surrey. Um, but then yesterday hit um, 50 off 21 balls against Kent. So, yeah, he can obviously play. Um, and they've got this uh, leg spinning all-rounder, uh, Luke Holman, um, who's hit some some pretty impressive cameos down the order. I mean, both Cracknell and Holman have made their uh, first team debuts in, in the Blast competition this year. And I think it's, that's just a feature of... Been a big feature of county cricket this, this year is seeing so many youngsters given an opportunity because obviously there's not as many overseas players. Um, and so yeah, quite, quite an interesting story there. And then when you contrast it with Tim Murta um, yeah, some nice little tales there.
2: Also, on Middlesex, they've got the leading run scorer and the leading wicket taker, uh, so far in the competition. And you haven't mentioned either of them. Do you know who those are?
1: Uh, Eskenazi, Eskenazi, and Tom Helm, Steve Finn, Steve Finn. Stephen,
2: Finn, leading wicket taker, Eskenazi, uh, who hasn't always been a fixture in their T Twenty side, is the leading run scorer. So, yeah, I mean, middlesex have been absolute pants at T Twenty cricket for for quite a long time. Sorted out a bit under Stuart Law last year, um, and there seems to be a bit of a bit of progress there.
0: Yeah, I guess kind of kind of what, one of the one of the nice things about the format with having three groups, the top two definitely qualifying for the quarterfinals, and the two of the best third place teams qualifying means that you can do quite badly and still, still, get, through. still, still, still and, get
2: through. And there'll be lots of interest going into the final round game as well.
0: Exactly, exactly. Like, as I said at, at the top there, pretty much every team is still in with a chance of, of qualifying.
2: She we mention Zach Crawley um, briefly? Again? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my
0: God, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I actually watched, Zach Crawley scored an astonishing 100 for Kent against Hampshire. I watched the second half of that innings uh, and it, it gets a really good Hampshire attack too with Mason Crane and Shahina Freed in it and he looked to just complete control you know, watching that, you just got to wonder how how soon will England get him into their white ball planning. I know they've got a lot of white yeah. ball openers, but he looked he looked special.
1: Well, he looked. It's almost like he hit that two six seven, and he's like realized I'm like really good at this thing. He doesn't <laughs> want
2: the season to end, does he? Because <laughs> no. he must have. Because he well, he had three first class hundreds prior to the big one, and he's scored a championship hundred since going back, and now a t twenty hundred yeah. on top of that as well. Mm. Oh, and also In I good think
1: good Nick. Um, I think they've all been at the Aegeus Bowl. Yeah. Um, And so the the first Class 100 was against Hampshire like a week earlier. Um, So that's the secret to his success. And also the, the situation we're in I can totally see like half of England's internationals being at the Aegean Bowl for the next few years. <laughs> Zach is just going to dominate. The one free. player hoping for the biosecure bubble bubble. There's going to gonna be Zach Crawley on his board there. Like Hampshire will <laughs> definitely want to sign him now. <laughs> as well. o- also, spare uh, a thought for poor Shaheen Afridi.
0: spent <laughs> half the summer just bowling at <laughs> Zach, Zach Crawley. Crawley. He's been a bowling <laughs> machine for Zach Crawley. Horrible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he just looks like a, it's a class above uh, basic, basically every attack he's facing at the moment. Um,
2: and y- And your man? Jake Lintot? Oh,
0: I mean, he keeps on going. Uh, so, so regular listeners of the show would have heard our interview with with Jake Lintot a few weeks ago. But Jake Lintott, in his essentially his first full season as a professional cricketer, is still still has one of the best economy rates. I think it's the best
2: economy rate of people who have actually bowled a decent amount of overs.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, if any, anyone who's bowled more than ten overs, he's got the best economy rate. After seven games, he's still going at five point five and over. So great, great first season You've for unearthed
2: him. Unearthed a gem. Yes, you take yeah, credit for this. One? Well.
0: I'd love to say I, I, I saw him play a twos game, but that, that's not true. Um, uh, so somebody, somebody at Warwickshire uh, told me about him and said he had a good story and he's a very good bowler who's probably going to do well. Uh, so I can't take credit for that, unfortunately. That
2: counts as journalism, though. That's hearing stuff and then telling other people about it. Yeah, that's, true, that's definitely true, journalism. true.
0: Um, but not quite as cool as saying "Yeah, so I, I remember seeing when he was 16. Anyway, there was, there was a there was a pretty weird scorecard in the game between Derbyshire and Leicester. Did other you... See this? Not this one, no. So, Derbyshire posted one hundred and forty-seven for eight in their innings, and they defended it despite only taking four wickets. Uh, oh, so, someone's someone's balls yeah, out there. Yeah. So, so Leicester at one point were seventy-five for four on the eleventh over, uh, and George Rose and Harry did and actually did really well to get them back into it, kind of rebuild the innings. They put on sixty-eight, but uh, at some point just stumbled really and couldn't quite get them over the line. And both finished about run a ball, just just slightly better than a run a ball. Um, Harry did and posted quite like an apologetic tweet to Leicester supporters but Leicester supporters were very supportive of him um, so uh, that yeah that was quite an interesting thought you don't see that too often elsewhere in the world of T20 cricket the IPL gets going this weekend we'll only touch on it briefly today we'll get more into it as a tournament actually gets underway but very simply Taha, who, who who are you who who are you backing to
1: win IPL 13 uh, I'm going to go with KKR just you know Dre Russ let him do his thing and then Sin Narayan. those two guys love watching them play, yeah, and any, <laughs> yeah, and any
0: team with them two in it've got a chance,
1: yeah, hundred percent um
0: you, you're also excited about King's eleven Punjab because uh, of,
2: of, of Glen Maxwell who we were talking about oh earlier Ma- earlier.
1: Maxwell Maxwell alongside Nicholas Puran. yeah, I yeah. know oh, that's that's going to be fun, yeah, yeah. You know, keep keep your eyes glued on that one
2: and k k r that's that's McCullum's lot with Morgan yeah. and Tom Banton as well so, so, so I that's can, I mean that's I can, be everyone's team, right? I can right? sort
1: of. See how they might try and approach the game with a uh, McCullum and
2: all, yeah. yeah, and they also <laughs> spent a huge amount on Pat Cummins as well, he, right? Like, yeah, and he in, an was interestingly not bowling that well against in, England in the 50 over stuff. Yeah,
1: I mean, he's still, um, I still almost exclusively see him as an incredible test bowler, and mm. yeah, that should be quite interesting. Mm.
0: Talking about favorite teams, surely most English fans are rooting for Radisson Rawls with Butler, Stokes, Archer, and, and Tom Curran as well. In uh, their team, that's, that's I suppose surely, England fans, but I yeah, was thinking true. the
2: the the Dre, Dre Russ really. I mean, that's <laughs> whoever wants to see.
0: Yeah. Um, how do you think the tournament will be impacted by the different location? Obviously, not being held in India, play, being held across just three venues in the UAE.
2: Yeah, it will be it will be odd. It's the complete opposite of what the IPL was all about. The kind of the razzmatazz, the entertainment, the the crowd going wild, packed in. Um, and yeah, it just won't be the same and uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can pull off anything to seem it, to make it seem more of a spectacle than it than it is. Um, it should... I mean, we saw the Caribbean Premier League wasn't exactly a kind of sparkling affair. Um, not helped by the pitches, not being great. So you'd hope the pitches should at least be better for the IPL, you would hope. Um, and also the quality should be better as well, which should detract from the fact that there aren't any, any people there watching it. And... Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's not going to be the same and we're just going to have to get used to this for the for the time being. But it, it is interesting, particularly with the IPL because it is, yeah, exactly not what the IPL is about playing in front of no one at all.
0: Mm. I, I wonder if this year it'll be slightly different in terms of how English fans view it because normally the IPL, from an international fan's perspective, there's very little international cricket that happens during an IPL anyway. But the start of the English season... Happens quite early in the IPL, or is this this time round? Uh, there's only a few weeks left of the English domestic summer, and there is pretty much no international cricket that's going to be played for the vast majority of it. So, cricket deprived fans might take more of an interest than they ordinarily would. It's all on Sky, is that right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I I wonder if, especially now that England kind of take T20 cricket more seriously, and there are more English players in the IPL than there used to be, etc. This might be the year that the IPL becomes even more in the mainstream from an English grifting point of view. Because I kind of get the sense that it never quite has, in a way, and is still kind of viewed on with a degree of suspicion by some people, including John Cleese.
2: (laughs) We should put that in context, right? So John Cleese (laughs) uh, took Tom Banton to task on Twitter for choosing to play in the IPL rather than playing for Somerset in the Bob Willis Trophy final the biggest game in Somerset history <laughs> as John Cleese describes it <laughs> mm. John Cleese is one of those people that the more he says the more you just want him to say less I mm. find
0: yeah uh, and, and also I actually I'm not sure if James Hildreth will be fit for the final but if James Hildreth will be fit I don't think Tom, Pans- Bam- Tom Banton gets in the Somerset team uh, they've done obviously done very well without him and he's not got a brilliant first class record to fall back on so the IP are obviously going to do so much for his career you know, you obviously want to be there if you're Tom Banton.
1: I
2: think everyone understands, apart from John Cleese. True. Um,
0: Joe, there's a new magazine out today. What's in it?
2: There is. That's Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine you're referring to. Uh, it is the all-rounders issue. Uh, so I think we came up with this during one of Ben Stokes' kind of epic feats at some point this this summer. Um, and it's something we talked about for a little while, uh, so we decided to go for it, so it's it's kind of centred around uh, an exclusive interview with Sir Ian Botham. I spoke to Beefy up in, he was in the Outer Hebrides, uh, enjoying a break with the family. He said it was the first summer break he'd had with his family for that he could basically remember, because either he's been playing or commentating for, well, forever it seems like, um, and seemed quite at peace with his, with his new life. He said, I make wine now, that's what I do, uh, he claimed that he gets as much pleasure from making an award-winning wine as he does from scoring a, a century at Lord's, although he did then qualify that with kind of almost afterwards. So I'm not sure I entirely believe him. But he, he does seem very much um, at peace with it all and, and actually surprised me by saying his time had definitely come to leave Sky and it should have finished earlier, which is obviously a bit of a contrast to David Gower, who we've had on the show and has openly said he's, he's struggling a bit to, to, to fill the gap of, of not, of not mm. doing that. Um, but yeah, we spoke about the role of the all-rounder, the... Kind of uh, uniqueness of all-rounders that need to just be involved in the game all the time to kind of seize it by the scruff of the neck, and particularly the the charismatic uh, breed of England all-rounders we've seen in in himself, Stokes, Flintoff. Looking back at someone like Tony Gregg, um, and then elsewhere in this section, we we speak to Ina Bakewell, who's perhaps England's best ever female all-rounder, um, who's got some good stories to to tell, including playing cricket at six months pregnant because she didn't know she was pregnant at that stage um we've got um tahar's excellent piece on jack callis who sort of we, we say kind of breaks the mold of these charismatic box office all-rounders uh did it in a very in a very different way than you spoke to
1: yeah i spoke to so mickey arthur who coached him for south africa and and neil manthorpe um the uh broadcaster and journalist who sort of covered the entirety of of callis's career and Neil had some sort of lovely stories, um, about, about covering Cat's career, but it's, it's something that Mickey Arthur said that really stays with me in, in that, um, he's not even sure whether Callis loved cricket, sort of, he, he loves golf, um, and the fact that Callis would basically, he'd basically be asleep before he had to, had to bat, um, but then, you know, he'd, you know, a wicket would fall and then he'd go out and, Mickey would just say that once, once Callis got through 20 to 25 balls, he knew that this was a big one. Like he could just, he could just put his feet up and, and know that, you know, Callis is on for, for a massive one. And he was just, just a remarkable cricketer. I mean, the numbers. So I was, I was sort of astounded by, because I think it's, I think it, it's, it's sort of common knowledge that Callis had this sort of really poor start to his test career with the bat. like barely got any runs in his first few innings. Uh, and his average was, you know in the in the 30s mid 30s for quite some time um then as as neil explains um in in the 90s um you know south african cricket has the, had this inferior inferiority complex to to the to the aussies the mighty aussies who all averaged close to 50 and all that kind of thing and the south africans were in the 30s and, and the media line was you know someone's got to get to you know we need a top class batsman to, to average 50 or something and Callis took that on and, you know, he, he properly, he went into the 50s and, and then just never left there and finished with a his I mean, outstanding this, average. Is it surely that he averaged how much after 50 test matches? Um, I think after 50, his average was probably in the 40s or something. Um, but I think it took about 70 something tests for his average to sort of, you know, settle down in the 50s. And then he just went from there. Yeah. Amazing.
2: Uh, and then elsewhere in that all rounders thing, um, Phil takes a look at the summer of 1966 when Gary Sobers, uh, who was already by then one of the kind of, if not the best cricketer in the world, certainly one of them. But that was the summer where it was absolutely clear that he was he was the best around and, and probably the best ever. Botham certainly says Sobers is the, the most complete all round ever. And I think most people would agree with that. And then obviously we can't talk about all rounders without talking about Darren Stevens. So Darren Stevens <laughs> slots in there alongside Callis Botham. Oh, Imran Khan was the other one as well. Um, he was quite good, yeah. Yeah, he was good. <laughs> uh, Richard Heller, who's interviewed Imran Khan um, in his in his house up in the hills in Pakistan, uh, has has written a kind of profile piece on Imran Imran the player and Imran the politician and, and what connects the two. Um, but yeah, most importantly, Darren Stevens, uh, John Houghton, uh, who's just a, a beautiful writer, uh, has done a piece on Darren Stevens, the, the kind of the accidental all rounder, the, the the batsman who became a bowler who just kind of slotted in to what the situation demanded. Um, potentially to the detriment of his batting in the in the long run, but certainly his his bowling uh is remains unstoppable. I think the Wisdom Twitter account put a list of first class wickets by season since his that's since the start of his career.
0: He, he he basically didn't bowl until he was about
2: 28-29. And he's obviously he takes a lot of stick for being everything that's wrong with county cricket. You bowl at seventy miles an hour and you take sixty wickets a season. But but John actually writes um this is a quote from John's piece. Here is a perfect piece of evolution, a player retrofitting his career to his match environment. It has its own kind of genius, however much of an accident it was at first. Um, and and that's, there's this lovely idea that Stevens has become something that he never thought he would uh, and is a legend of county cricket. And he, he actually is a legend of county cricket. I know we use that word too much as, as journalists, but in, in this case, it's absolutely true. Um, so I'm glad we got him in there as well. So that's the all-rounders stuff. Um, elsewhere in the magazine we've got um, our series on cricket's diversity problem which is now into its third part uh, Jim Wallace has looked at um, the question of players' backgrounds there was a test this summer I think it was one of the Pakistan tests when Stokes wasn't around that nine of England's Test 11 were from a private school background which is the most it's, it's ever been so this was kind of a jumping off point for Jim to look at where these cricketers are coming how they're being produced and his argument is that um, English cricket increasingly is is fishing from an ever shallower pool uh, and what that means in terms of inclusion and diversity uh, the ECB is constantly trying to tell us that cricket is an inclusive sport well if you look at the England test team it suggests otherwise um, that's not to have a go at these cricketers that come from private school and there are instances where they've gone to private schools um, because they've got scholarships because of their cricket which is potentially sl- slightly different but that doesn't change the fact that Cricketers are coming from a very small area, and and that's not necessarily good for for the game as a whole um, or its future. Um, so Jim's done a really good piece of work looking into that. Um, and as previewed about six weeks ago by Phil <laughs> on this podcast, Tim Key's my golden <laughs> summer, the poet and actor Tim Key has has written about 2005, the biggest summer of them all, um, reminiscing about doing the Fringe Festival at, up at Edinburgh. And trying to watch as much cricket as he possibly could in between his performances. Uh, and anyone knows Tim's work will know that that will be an excellent piece of work to read.
0: Wonderful. Uh, you can head to bit.ly forward slash WCM special to get your first three digital issues of the magazine for just £2.99, which is, as we've said before, quite frankly,
1: ridiculous deal. Um, thanks, Joe. Thanks, to our, Oh, I do have sort of one sort of sad note um, to finish with this with is that. Zach Crawley's first-class 100 against Hampshire did not come at the Aegeus spot. Oh, no. Um, so that, but it's oh, That's, that's relief. I thought you were going to say something much
2: sadder than that. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, probably, <laughs> yeah that, was, that was
1: probably an exaggeration. I thought you were um, going to say someone
2: had died, so I'm, yeah. I'm fine yeah. with that.
1: Okay, well, uh, okay. So but I it guess was against Hampshire. It was, it was, was against Hampshire, Hampshire. yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. And, I, and I guess Shaheen wasn't playing that game, so it's not been that bad a summer for Shaheen against Zach Crawley, but still not been great. Yeah. But anyway, thanks Joe. <laughs> <laughs> thanks R This has been the Wiz Cricket Weekly podcast. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends and if you're feeling especially nice today, why not leave us a five star review on the podcast app. Cheers.
2: Podcast Network.